Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody, and welcome to We Gotta Talk, where it's all about real talk on big topics. So excited about today's interview. I say that a lot, and I mean it big time today. I've invested 25 plus hours of my life into listening to Prince Harry's book, Spare, on Audible, as well as watching the documentary on him and Meghan. And, you know, we've all gotten a really candid peek into what's going on in the dear prince's mind lately. And I'm really excited that on today's episode, after breaking down the entire book on my own for the past three episodes, I have an expert in the house who is doing the psychological analysis on what she sees as the themes running through the book Spare. Nero Feliciano, as you will hear me say, is a renowned psychotherapist, and she is a frequent contributor on the Today Show. She is an author, um, and she's been on this podcast multiple times to talk about many issues. So I'm really grateful for her perspective on all the things that she saw happening in this book. We talk about everything from the sibling dynamics and Harry and William's relationship to the sort of lack of emotion that was shown between Harry and the rest of the royal family. We talk about the idea of a woman taking a man away from his family Ooh, that Meghan has been accused of, the childhood trauma that Harry and William went through, and all of the sort of juicy psychoanalysis of the book. I hope you guys enjoy this. We really get into some deep themes here, both family and relationship related. And um, I think Nero gives us just a whole new perspective on how to interpret this book after listening or reading to it. So if you haven't already, check out parts one, two, and three of Sperry. And this is the final episode in this series. I hope you guys have enjoyed. Thank you so much for listening. And here's Nero. She is a psychotherapist. She is an author of an amazing book, and she is a frequent Today Show contributor. So you've seen her beautiful face on your TV. Um, Nero Feliciano, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Oh, I'm always happy to see you and talk to you. Sunny, thanks for having me. It's so great. We've been kind of chatting online about um, doing this interview, and I knew that we needed a true psychological analysis of the book mm. Spare. And I've gotten way too into this. And I was like, you know what? Nero would be perfect to bring on and do all of the professional version of the amateur stuff that I've been doing while listening to Spare. And you listened to it too as well, right? I did. I did. And I was telling you, there's something about hearing his voice tell his story that was really powerful in this. And even though what you've been doing, as you call it, amateur, you're spot on with some of the things that I know that you're thinking and that we've talked about. Yeah, it's really wild. Just tell me broad impressions after having listened to the book. Um, you nailed something right away that I think a lot of people have zeroed in on as far as the overarching theme, no pun intended, um, mm. Archie. Um, but tell us the vibe you got while listening to Spare. I have to say that when I was listening to it, I was listening it to it through, I think, two perspectives. One is a therapist and the other is a mother. You know, I have four kids. I have a son, one of the four. And I, you know, you can't help but think about it from those perspectives when that's your identity, right? And my heart kept breaking for him over and over again, because you see this child, even in his adult years, 
looking for something that he should have got early on in his life and he never did. Mm -hmm. And you never stop seeking that. And the desire for that comes out in different ways as we saw in the book. But I have to say just overarching, you know, we always, when we look at these stories, you know, I watched the Netflix series as well. Um, I, I, by the way, was like a big Diana fan growing up. Forever. Oh yeah, I mean, she, obviously, my uh, magnetic, even in retrospect, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, just thinking about this being her son and seeing him come full circle in many ways just made me so happy for him. You know, there's always that lens: is how much of this is true? How much of this is, you know, sensationalized for entertainment, whatever? But I, I hope it's true. And I feel like he got what he wanted. I feel like he got what his mother wanted for herself mm-hmm. and probably for him as well. Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Reading or and or listening to Spare mm. through a mother's perspective was really, really eye-opening because mm. we start to realize through other people's stories, the impact that we have merely by existing or not existing on our children's lives. And um, I I said this before in multiple, um, you know, chats on, on Instagram or the other recaps that I did on my podcast. All I hear is a traumatized 12 year old boy through, through all of the gorgeous writing. And you and I talked about the way that he and his ghostwriter managed to describe some really powerful moments in his life. It was so beautifully written and you do see the arc in his character. You see the growth of him as a man through the military, through his family problems. You can recognize that that's happened, but the bottom, bottom, bottom of all of that, that still comes through. So I want to. The mm-hmm. trauma, the traumatized mm-hmm. 12-year-old child who had to witness uh, or had to go through on a world stage the loss of the most important person to him. So tell us about that from the expert and psychological perspective, Nero. Is it true that when something traumatic happens, I've heard this before, that people can freeze emotionally at that point in their lives? Does that always happen? It doesn't always happen, but you can certainly become stunted at that stage of your life. And there are certain things that normally develop emotionally in adult, in kids who have gotten what they need, the unconditional support, the love, um, the attention that they need. And that's why, as you were saying, we realize the impact that we have as parents when they don't get it. One, that desire doesn't go away. You, Mm -hmm. You look for it in other ways, but when those desires get suppressed and when pain gets suppressed, it also will come out in different ways, but you can get stunted at that moment. And, and it's interesting. We, we look at it as the trauma of losing the mom, but I feel like the dysfunction started way before then. You know, the, the absence of having stability in your life, the idea that your every move was watched and commented and criticized. I mean, we, we all experience that on some level, just being on social media, not celebrities, right? Mm-hmm. So we put something out there, we get everybody's criticism and feedback and comments. But imagine a child growing up in that. What One thing that really struck me that Meghan Markle had said, I don't remember if she said it in the Netflix yeah, I think she said it in her Netflix special was she thought behind closed doors, all the formality goes away. They start relating as a family, but it doesn't. That formality stays there. So so when I was looking at those situations as he was describing it, I'm like, here's a child because child, whether you're born royal or not, children crave affection. We know that with kids, we need to express all five love languages to them. 
physical touch, words of affirmation, all of these different things. And you look at how limited that contact was in his life growing up, growing up and how formal his relationships were with mom and dad, not knowing who was going to be around at what point and having caregivers step in and having that relationship be confusing because you're not so sure mm -hmm. where your loyalty lies. I mean, there was trauma before the big T trauma um, growing up. And that only, I think, exacerbated what may have already been there. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not ever one to say that there's a right or wrong way to do anything in parenting, but hearing how the lack of physical contact mm. of words of affirmation aside from his dad calling him my darling boy, which boy. we hear mm -hmm. repeated yeah. over and over. Yeah. I have to say I'm in the team of like overexpressing our emotions as parents rather than underexpressing them after hearing this. Mm -hmm. And I know that yeah. that can go far in the other direction as well, but you hear Harry talk throughout the entire book about the lack of affection and not mm -hmm. only the lack of affection, but the lack of ability to show it between him and his father, even moments he wanted to reach out and hug his grandmother, the queen. And, and you have that innate human urge to connect and to hug and to embrace, embrace and, mm all of that had had to be stunted and it's it's hard to argue against okay i feel like there might be a right way to do this parenting thing when it comes to emotion and that's to like i'd rather overdo it than underdo it right and different cultures are different in that there's some cultures who are a lot less physically emotive and expressive other cultures that are more verbally expressive what what it's different, varies, varies depending on culture, but there's some level of predictability in how you can get that affection met and different cultures have different ways of doing it. But here you're in a subculture, you know, it's a culture within a culture, right? Yeah, that so has true. even more formality and even more expectation. And the thing that struck me was the lack of predictability, because what we know with kids is when they have structure plus predictability, when they know love is unconditional, those are the situations which they thrive. There was once research that said there were a couple times where if a parent is present and that's when they wake up, when they come from school and at bedtime, that child will be more emotionally stable. There were correlations between being present at those times um, and then emotional stability in a child. And I was thinking about his life and who was there during those times. It was very unpredictable, very unpredictable. Yeah. One constant figure is his brother. And what I wanted to touch on with you was this continued theme of sibling rivalry and also having to depend on that very same person for connection and counsel through his mother's death. So this is a person in his life who's, who's, been there, experienced the same things at relatively the same stage in life. They're of the same blood. They're obviously doing most things together. And mm -hmm. yet there is tremendous tension that Harry describes throughout the entire book, starting from childhood. And what was interesting to me too, was not only the competition aspect of it, and we'll get into the fight that he talks about with his brother, William, but mm -hmm. his sense that he can't emotionally rely on him at any point yeah. that William is processing the very same event in a really different way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's interesting when you read the book, you're like, come on, just be the big brother. You know, that's our American lens on it. 
He needs you. He needs you for emotional support. But you're looking at another child who was traumatized and then seemingly parentified when he, too, Mm -hmm. was a child experiencing trauma. So we can't necessarily expect that from him. He was never shown how to be a loving older sibling. You know, generally when when you have those relationships and families, they can occur in different ways. It could be because both parents were absent, that that one sibling steps up. But you look again at the extreme pressure that was on that older child who knows they're going to be king, who knows that every move in their life is watched. And perhaps even what my younger sibling does is going to affect the way that I'm perceived as well. Right. So so you have all of these dynamics, plus the fact that he was older when he went through the trauma Mm -hmm. and being older, he would have understood more. He would have processed more at that time. And we see how there were many um, defense mechanisms at play with Harry from repression to rationalization, uh, you know, all, all of those pieces that he did. But one thing that kept constantly going through my mind was, was there some level of displacement with William, with the older brother? You know, he too, again, they their pain was never recognized. Even at the funeral, they were told there was a certain way they had to behave. They had to go out and shake hands with people. You know, would you ever ask your children who had just lost a parent? I mean, just common sense wise to do this, to, mm. to play a role in that moment. So, so when we think about it from that perspective, you can understand why that trauma was suppressed so deeply. No one acknowledged their pain. And I think if there was even just a couple safe adults that would have done that for them, this may have looked very differently in terms of their development. But displacement is also a very powerful defense mechanism. And you look at this person who was bottled up with trauma, with sadness, with grief, and this was the closest relationship to him, right? The brother. So mm-hmm. maybe that's where it came out. And we may be reading it in certain situations, but the emotion that was expressed towards his brother may be a lot bigger than that. Yeah. You know, what's, yeah, you're right. And and hearing you explain this really gives me pause and a little bit of compassion for William, whose story will never mm-hmm. be told, presumably, just because of the position mm-hmm. that he's in. It's easy to sort of um, cast him into the character of uh, the bad guy, because yeah. we'll never hear his side of the story. But that's really interesting. I never thought to think about the pressure that the older sibling, not only an older sibling in the role, like you said, of presumed parentified caregiver now, but someone who's going to assume such a grand responsibility on the world stage as well. I I do wish there was a chance to hear their side of the story. What I kept going back to was like, oh my gosh, Harry married an American and now he is American. He's sharing his (laughs) thoughts. He's sharing his feelings. I mean, the the fact that this book exists is a testament to this man's personal evolution. Yes. I mean, if you would have said 30 years ago, oh, a member of the, you know, immediate royal family is going to come out with a tell-all book. You'd be like, Ugh. but here we have a man. And and it's clear that he sees himself as evolved. And there's a level mm. of pride that he expresses when he talks about going to therapy and exploring his own emotions and digging deep to it. And you, you feel pity for him almost because he's like, guys, I'm on this healing journey or what he perceives mm-hmm. to be a healing journey. Why can't you just join me? All he wants to do is bring his family and bring his family in for to talk more and to figure it out. And they're just like, no, thanks. No, because their life is the system. They are going to benefit from the system. That's what their position is where he doesn't have that 
same pressure. I mean, he did in some ways, you could say he could have looked at it that way in that it was going to afford him these benefits, but certainly not the same benefits as his brother and father. Right. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I have compassion on all of them because mm -hmm. as a parent, and you look at this in therapy, when you, when you're working with someone and you start looking at family history and why they were parented in a certain way, well, that's all their parents knew, you know, and they may actually have done better than what was given to them. But mm -hmm. when you have generations in this system, they only know how to do things a certain way. And if they step outside of that, there are major consequences for them. So it, it really does feel like they're trapped in it. They have to work within it in order to maintain identity and, um, you know, livelihood. If you were called upon to broker some sort of um, peace treaty between the uh -huh. brothers, oh, between God, William I and Harry, <laughs> uh, where would you where would you even start? I mean, you know, assuming that both sides had the equal desire to heal mm -hmm. and to move on, like where do you even start with a rift mm -hmm. that is this deep? Yeah, I, I you know I would ask them, what do you both want from each other? You know, what kind of relationship do you want from each other? I would start there because you have to assess motivation when you're first meeting. And and maybe what they actually want is clouded by heightened emotions right mm -hmm. now. Um, but if if we could resolve every issue, what what would you want? I think that's where I would start. And I do think and it's so hard because when I was reading it, I was I was thinking, all right, here Harry's being so honest. Will we ever get that level of honesty from his brother? I don't think so. I don't no. think so. He has to he has to work within the system, and and there's more to lose for him. Right. I, I mean, I, I said this jokingly on the last episode that I did, which was like part three of the recap, and I said, here we have a man on this Harry on this emotional journey prompting him to do things, to start discussions that have never happened before on a public stage. I mean, we've always mm. known the faults of the royal family on a grand scale and the mm -hmm. faults of, of the royal family and thus colonialism are many. We're not ignoring those. But here we are more enthralled by the small things. And how ironic would it be if opening up this door, we see a change in the monarchy brought on indirectly by an American? That I said jokingly. Crazy. I mean, she really... And, and and turning toward Megan, I mean, it's hard mm. to see this evolution happy, happen with Harry and not think it was due at least in part to this partner that he has who's maybe opened him up to the importance of some of this stuff. Do you do you buy into that whole theory that marrying someone can change a man? And oh, the reason this that, is happening yeah. is because of her. Would you go that far? I mean, my husband is evidence of that. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I was like, I figures you'd marry a therapist at some point That's so awesome. you can unpack your whole life. But um, yeah, partners can change each other. It's the most powerful relationship we have, that marital relationship. And, and the love that you have for that person is such motivation in terms of your desire to change for them and for yourself to be a better version of yourself. So I do think that can happen. It's it's interesting because women have such strong opinions on Megan. I, I have female friends who cannot stand her. I have female friends who really have empathy and compassion for her. I, I completely have empathy for her. I, I don't think anyone, and it seems that historically that was proven in Harry's life, 
just anyone can step into that role Mm -hmm. and know what they're getting into. I think it's a lot bigger than, than our understanding. Yeah, let's let's talk about her, Meg a little bit more. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I like you. I have compassion, a new, a renewed compassion for her. It was difficult for me to see beyond the. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? The front-facing image. The I don't want to say there. There's there's something about her that is not calculated, but deliberate. Um, mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. a woman who I said this before who reads her own journal entries at a wedding reception, you know, she's, Mm. she's, she has an out, she has, she's an actor, right? I mean, she has that ability to translate what's in here. And then not only an ability to show it, but a willingness to show it, which can come across to some people as performative, performative. Yes. Extra Mm -hmm. as the kids say. But when Mm -hmm. I, when you, when you take time to listen to their story, you do have so much more compassion for this woman who was thrown into an entire ecosystem that was a 180 from from where she started. So where do you stand on Meg? And did you come around in the way that you perceived her and their relationship after reading this and after watching the Netflix special? I think they're good for each other. I think they both give each other what they need. And and it's their business, you know? Mm -hmm. So I mean, let them have a relationship that they want to have without all the commentary, you know, like I wouldn't want everybody commenting on my marriage. There are things that I do, right. There are things that I do that are terrible for my husband and vice versa, you know, and there are things, times where I bring out the best in him. That is a marriage, right? We're, we're not perfect. We're evolving as a couple. We're trying to figure things out. And, and you're right in that. Yeah. I think people judge her as being fake because of the acting background, because of her desire. You know, everybody thinks, okay, you're an actress your ambition is to become famous. Maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe in here you got it. And now this is how you're behaving in it. I mean, it's so much judgment, but at the end of the day, she, she wants a healthy marriage. She didn't have that growing up. Right. She too was looking for what she did not have that stability, that family, that home. And he was very similar in that way. And in that sense, they can appreciate each other and create this life that neither of them had, but constantly sought throughout their life. So, so for that, I, I think, I think she's good. You know, I think, I think she's good for him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some people are like, oh, she's the the boss of the relationship. If that works for them, it works for them. Well, that's what I wanted to follow up with was this accusation that we hear repeated over and over in the media and it colors people's opinion, which is the woman who took the man away. We hear this narrative Mm. quite a bit. It's always the woman who Mm. is to be at fault for issues in his family when, as it turns out, after listening to this book, looks like the issues were always there. What do you make of that narrative of the woman who, quote unquote, drags the husband away? Mm. I think there's a lot of factors at play when it comes to her. I mean, one, yes, he he was kind of coming up against the system throughout his life. We saw that. We saw what his desires were prior to her. But there there is a very common narrative to assign blame and to assign blame to women and also to assign blame to women who are outspoken, who oftentimes are Black women. Black women are outspoken. They've had to be throughout their entire life. They did not have a choice but to be outspoken. So I I do think the fact that she's articulate, the fact that she's bold um, has worked against her. 
in in that people look at her as the reason why all of this is happening. But I, I think very much she just reflected what he wanted already. You know, he was able to see himself in her and in her desires and in that life. So I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And and the other thing that I have to bring up about trauma is that I, I always think about it when I'm working with patients is we have this like trauma box in our mind and it continually opens, right? Any other trauma that we might experience goes in there. And throughout our life, that box has that ability to open up again. So, so you know, when when you saw when you're reading the book, you saw one how traumatized he was by his mother's death, the fact that she died because of um, the paparazzi, the fact that he found out ten years later that when she was dead in the car, there were people taking pictures of her. You know, you don't think you'd grow up a little sensitive to having that influence over the person that you loved the most in your life. You don't think that there's going to be that feeling that resurges and, and a heightened awareness and sensitivity to what could happen when you've lost the most essential figure, the most prominent figure in your life in the past. And, and it, of course, he's going to be sensitive to it, you know, and I and I don't think that was her doing. I think his yeah. decisions were also a result of trauma and the and the anxiety that fueled um, the fear that this was going to happen again. And it was mm -hmm. a very real anxiety. You know, what right. was amazing to me about his trauma was the fact that he did not accept for 10 years that his mother actually died. And that's that's a child's defense mechanism um, of rationalization. You know, he had to tell himself, my mom went away somewhere. She was not in the coffin because she wanted a more peaceful life because the reality of that was too big and too devastating for a child to accept. So your brain figures out a way to process it. And story is often a very powerful defense mechanism for children and rationalization. So we saw, it wasn't until he was 22 that he finally realized, no, my mother really is dead. That's how powerful the trauma was for him. So you have to look at his actions and his sensitivity and his um, anger towards the paparazzi, the fear towards the paparazzi and protective nature of Megan through the lens of trauma, because that's where it's coming from. Right. I, I sense in him too. And I'm, I'm curious if you pick up on this, a strong desire to protect a woman. He could not protect his mom, yeah. but he will mm -hmm. protect Megan. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, it's almost, it's, it is the dominant theme, it seems in their relationship. And you hear it from the beginning, from when they're in the fields in Botswana through their mm -hmm. flight to North America, I will protect this woman. I, I will protect you. I promise I will protect you, um, which is great, but it is, um, to me, it just screamed like, oh gosh, he's doing for her what he felt like he couldn't do for his mom. And what nobody did for his mom. Right. You know, I mean, he, he couldn't do it at 12, but nobody did it. And he realized that later, nobody stepped in to protect his mother. Mm -hmm. So in some ways that was his mantle. That was his calling on his life, whether it was conscious or subconscious that he was going to do it differently for the women in his life. Yeah. And, and when I look at them as a couple too, and it goes back to something you said a few minutes ago, she seems to 
unlock what he always wanted to be. Mm -hmm. This was a man who probably always would have found a way to buck the system or to, I don't want to say go against his family because that sounds overly deliberate, but Mm -hmm. who was always someone that would follow his own heart and passion. And it was, it was like that perfect mix of your soulmate or partner coming in and lighting that fire and saying, okay, you can finally do and be who you want to be. It just, it seems like they just were perfectly matched, but he was always going to do this. That's what I feel like after reading this book. And if you think about it, there would, you would understand the need for validation in his Mm -hmm. life, right? It almost seemed like they were always being told what they couldn't be, Mm -hmm. right? And what they should be. But here's someone coming in saying, oh no, you're good. You're good. So, right? When, when he was always told otherwise, either within the family or by the culture, right? Whether it was lies or whatever it was, this was the picture that was painted of him. And, and you would ask me, you know, was, was he always looking for a mother figure? And I, I thought about that and I don't necessarily think he was always looking for a mother figure. I think he has always been looking for a place that felt like home. Hmm. And I think he found that in her. I think he found a place where it felt like home. It felt like safety. It felt like security. It felt like that unconditional acceptance. Why does it feel a little edible to me? <laughs> oh, and I'm not well, saying that. You know, yeah, I, 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 I there is you. something in in my perception of the book and his many interviews is the strong desire to be matched up with a mother figure, if and not. In every sense, but in the sense that I don't, it, it seems like he lacked that strong female figure. And not only did he lack it, I mean, he had the queen, but she doesn't really, let's be honest, have time to snuggle on the couch and watch it, <laughs> watch Disney movies, you know, with her grandson. So, I mean, it was even more so this void that Meg filled yeah. stepping in, like someone he could take care of. I mean, he's, really he's been into older women he's dated several older women the course of the book i mean guys if you've listened or watched you know this he not only talks about ex-girlfriends he runs through how he felt about them i mean it's it's very it's very intimate in a lot of ways so he was always seeking like a a figure in a woman it seemed like who had that stability who had that sense of self who had that this was not a guy who was dating the party girl he in fact he he was that in the relationship and he was seemed to have been drawn to more responsible even keeled experienced women. Am I wrong? I, you know, no, no, you're right. And I, I do agree with it from, from that sense. And I think part of it is, you know, when I, even when I think about my relationship with my son, like I, I am the authority, right? Mm-hmm. So I am the one directing, I am the one kind of telling him what to do. And, and as a son, he's comfortable with that, with me being his mother, that is our role. And I think that's also why he was not turned off by a woman who um, was confident in her own skin, who, you know, presented herself as an authority, who was outspoken, right? Because that's what we expect from a parent, a parental figure. So in that sense, I don't think it was something, I think it could have been something very desirable to him because of, as you said, the loss early on of that figure. But that, that Elizabeth Arden eight hour cream scene on his frostbitten todger was weird. Was it not weird? Oh my gosh. I was like, there was sometimes I was like, okay, this might be a little too much. I don't think I need to hear all of this. 
But let's just chalk it up to trauma and then eat to over. Listen, and we yeah. this is not a judgment call. We all got it, Harry. Don't worry. We got our big yeah. T trauma and we got, all got our little T trauma. But I was I like, know oh. it. I um, know. Yep. What, what, <laughs> I know. It was so bad. What do you make of the the fight that's gotten a lot of press between mm. Harry and William? Um, it seemed to me, this is like what happened, I believe in Nottingham cottage or not cot as they call it. Yeah. William goes over to Harry's place and tries to start a conversation about Harry being brainwashed, which is the phrase they use offensively to describe Harry's relationship with Meg. Just feel like that's kind of rude too. Um, and it results mm-hmm. in this physical altercation. Harry sort of refuses to fight back. It's like, they're leaning really hard into their characters now of like bitter put upon air and, <laughs> the wild and you know the wild know. and free spare who's on his own self-discovery journey um is this a is this a relationship that you think can be mended based on the few facts that we have i really don't know at this point if it can because what harry did in terms of making the documentary in the book is so far out of what their culture has told them is acceptable you know, that I, I don't know how that has affected his family and especially telling certain parts and portraying his brother in that way and whether or not it was to that extent or not. What what I will say, though, again, goes back to trauma for William. Here is someone who has never been encouraged to expect express emotion, right? Never. So all of a sudden it comes to this height. And could I... Could I envision that physical altercation? Absolutely. These are men who have mm-hmm. suppressed their emotion for a really long time, who have never been taught how to process emotion in a healthy way. It can explode in that moment. And the other thing I just wanted to say, like, even though they're grown men and they're they're acting like boys, like, if you've ever been in a situation where you've been back home with your adult siblings, like for Christmas or something, people revert to their old childhood roles easily yes easily yes. so so you're put in a situation and all of a sudden it doesn't matter if you're 45 years old you start fighting like you were 12 again you know and that there's something psychological psychological cues that happen in that context i've experienced it with my like 40 something year old sister you know i have like married with four kids and i'm like what is going on here what is going on <laughs> it's because- so true it is so true. And by the way, she's a therapist too. So it can even happen to those of us who know what's going on. I mean, so I saw a little bit of that in them for sure. Yeah. I, I feel like we all go home at the end of the day. And I say this with with the utmost sincerity. I believe that my relationship with my sister has been more impactful on me in the ways that I've developed my personality or my reaction to things than my parents even. I mean, mm, the people mm-hmm. that you do life with, I mean, you do life with your parents, of course, they're guiding you presumably and helping you through what they can, but it's your peers, it's your siblings yes, that I feel like sometimes have, don't you feel like that too? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I can understand if they really believed she was brainwashing and they all of a sudden see, maybe he had these desires all along, but all of a sudden he found ways to express them publicly mm-hmm. and he had a different motivation from taking in taking this new direction and they're you know displacing it all on her not looking at the bigger picture but hey this is her fault i can understand why he went in there saying right. I-, I need to help him like i feel really helpless here and also having anger 
all of those things come up. And like I said, you're, you're dealing with someone who was not taught how to express emotion, who also has trauma express, um, suppressed, right? And, and that's all going to come to a head when emotions are heightened. Yeah, I, I do feel bad for Meg after all of this. Really I do, do too. Oh my gosh, I do. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't want any woman to go through feeling that way. And just looking at the invasion of their privacy and the extent mm-hmm. to which literally she was stalked and lied about and not defended um, when clearly you saw they had the capacity to defend other people when it was in their best interest. Yeah, that, that, was, that my... was really awful. Well, yeah, let's get into that because mm-hmm. um, William, or not William, Harry and Meghan have blamed that on racism. They've blamed it mm-hmm. on the sort of structure of the royal family, many things. But the kickback on that is other women going through the royal system, whether that's Camilla or Kate. And of yeah. course, we know Diana too, all went through the same baptism by fire. And yeah simply stuck it out in your mind was there an extra element that meg was dealing with that wasn't present and 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 what would you advise if you were working with them as a couple harry Mm -hmm. and megan while she was going through this traumatizing time in the press would you tell her to, to try to stick it out like what what are we missing here in the analysis again you know as therapists we don't tell people what to do we try and um unearth what their desires truly are and, and once we figure out what their desire is, we can look at the process in which they have to go through to actually fulfill those desires. And if her desire was to be with him and to, and if they believe that that's what they could create together, that home, that security, that life, then there was, would be a process where she'd have to stick it out. So, you know, do I, do I think it was right? Ra- I think race absolutely was a factor. You know, you're looking at like the biggest colonizers in the world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I do think race was a factor. I also think, though, that the paparazzi would have used anything they could have. So, you know, that happened to be the factor that they could use to to paint the picture that they wanted to as well. So and and one thing I was seeing, I think, you know, if it was an outspoken white woman, okay, they may not have used race in that way. but. they would have used something. And and part of that was the backstory that they gave in the book, that he gave in the book saying that she couldn't compete with Kate. She couldn't compete with Camilla because they had higher prominence in, in terms of priority of the royal family. And they didn't want her to take away from that, right? And they also had to restore Camilla's reputation because she was coming in not hot. You know, so, <laughs> not hot. <laughs> not hot. so they didn't want her to have a higher likability, a greater likability than her. So those stories in the book were what blew my mm. mind. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so deceptive and manipulative. It really right? is. And and I, I harped on this a lot, maybe too much so in the episodes that I did. But what really, really came into stark relief for me was the the vast cultural differences between Americans mm. and British people. Mm-hmm. I mean, like mm-hmm. we can speak the same language. We can literally have been born from your way of life. And um, the, the it's, it's like, it's just a completely different way of existing. Like I, we don't have the deference that they do to the institution or to, mm-hmm. to anything that 
symbolizes the strength of of one person like right like we I, I, ideally right in america we we validate and appreciate the principles behind the government and not the person in charge itself even though she's technically right. just a figurehead and i know that they're like i say this and i know that they're a working democracy i know that but they do have this extra element to their society and therefore in the royal family and therefore in the general public that is so deferential to this family yes. that it's weird i'm listening to this and i'm like She's just a woman with a crown on her head. She happens mm -hmm. to have really great accessories, but we right. need not worship her. It's so it's almost strange to me to hear the level of deference that these grown adults are expected to show this individual. It just shows how yeah. American I am at the end of the day because I'm like, dude, you're no better than I am. <laughs> it's it's true, but we do have that relationship with different celebrities in our culture. That's you know, true. They but, may not be a figurehead, but that's true. We well, question we, them. We do question them. We, and we, for yeah. better or for worse, drag them down too. I mean, like, oh, there's yeah, nothing yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a heartbeat. To do. Right. Right. <laughs> it's, it's awful. But sometimes you see that worship factor when it comes to certain celebrities and different people, like in awe, awestruck, unable mm -hmm. to speak when they're around them, they start crying. Right. And, and it is another form of that, but with a system that's been in place for generations. Right. Right. And they're, they're taught to respect, they're taught to revere in some ways it's as in some ways it is kind of their religion in that sense, the way that we may be towards God um, for those of us who are religious. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of reverential relationship. But, it, but it's so interesting not, not to question and not to, and I'm sure psycho and I saw it in the documentary, the psychologists who did break it down um, in that area, they, they understand it in that mm. these are people, I mean, looking at the dysfunction of the family emotionally is fascinating. It me. really is. Just what in terms you, of human development. Right. What did you make mm -hmm. of um, King Charles having been bullied in school and um, from the psychoanalyst perspective, um, the impact that that may have had on him? Right. You know, I, I think that can go several ways. I mean, one, what I've seen in practice, at least in terms of people who've been bullying is it bullied is you constantly question your worth, your mm. self-worth, you know, and now you have this, this guy, I think I thought about him all the time waiting to be king. And it felt like it never was going to happen. Right. 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 You're, you're in your seventies. Now it's going to happen now. So just constantly waiting and having to live up to that lifestyle in, in preparation of that moment. So a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. And again, without a lot of emotional connection and mm -hmm. support and stability. So looking at it through that lens, you can see why emotionally you could, it almost seemed like, oh, he wanted to connect with the, the kids, but mm -hmm. There was like a wall that mm -hmm. held him back from doing so. He did so in the best way that he knew how. That mm -hmm. may have even been more emotive than, than what he grew up with, right? But still, it was not enough. Our best is sometimes not enough. It's the best we can do, but it doesn't always mean it's enough. Are, are you a believer too that with each generation, assuming that we're doing some work on ourselves and practicing self-awareness, that it gets a little bit better? And and what of this theory that our trauma goes seven generations back? You hear that talked about too. Yeah. Like we carry the trauma of what our ancestors have gone through. Is there mm -hmm. truth to that from the from the professional perspective? And and obviously we're seeing that play out in everyone's lives, not just the royals, but what yeah. do you make of that? You know, I do believe there are threads of it. But if, if you are doing the work and if you are 
increasing your self-awareness. If you are aware of your issues and you know the work that has to be done, I believe generational trauma can be healed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It can be healed. I even look at the life I had. My parents came as immigrants in their 20s. They're both physicians. What they've had to go through is very different than what I've had to go through in my life. Mm -hmm. And because of their sacrifice, my life has been made better. So has their trauma been passed on to me? No. I mean, I I think there are things that I look at what they did just, and and I have more of a privilege to be more connected and more present, but they came here to work and they had no backup. They had to work. So were they around as much as I'm around for my kids? No, but that was more a function of privilege and Mm -hmm. position, right? So, you know, long answer, but some trauma, yes, is passed down. If we are li- if we are living and if we're embodying the consequences of the previous generation's actions mm-hmm. and just going on with it and not recognizing it yes trauma then gets passed down but if we can stop and say okay what did i not get how can i get it now what ways have i been impacted and actually seek healing generational trauma can be healed and there is something oddly comforting and i i don't mean this to sound diminishing or like critical in any way, because I don't want to see anyone suffer regardless of the position to which they're born. But there's something oddly comforting to know that royals, they're just like us, you know, I mean, at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, it's, it's the sibling rivalries, it's the parental conflict, it's the loss and the trauma and trying to find the perfect partner. I mean, Mm -hmm. if anything, um, this book for me, and I want to know what what the overarching one of the overarching lessons you took away from it was, but was that, um, everybody is capable of evolution. And that even Mm -hmm. if you're born into a position or a family that hasn't appreciated that expression before, that you can do that. And and that's a very American way of seeing things again. And I know there are many people out there who want Harry to go back on the path of following the rules and following the protocol. And they hope for the day that he can reintegrate into the royal family. But for me, it feels like a victory in, in most senses to see someone who's able to come to terms with their challenges and to um, evolve into a stronger person. And it's, Mm. you know, it's hard not to feel compassion for them. That's what I keep going back to time and time again on all of the media I've consumed about them. I I had a real staunch perspective on like, okay, enough guys. And I do think that to an extent, I feel like, Mm -hmm. okay, we've, we've aired the dirty laundry. Like we got it. But, um, (laughs) but you also come away with a sense of compassion that you haven't had before. So that to me was the, the big thing I took away. What, what about you? It was, it was the, the fact that healing even from, trauma so profound is possible. Mm-hmm. And you just felt, you felt that victory for him in coming full circle and finally finding and creating a life. Yes, it has challenges, but one where he feels safe, secure, and loved, mm-hmm. right? Because at the end of the day, we're looking for safety, security, belonging, and love. And he's, he has that now. So that, that was a beautiful thing overarching recognizing to the profound impact of trauma when when kids are young and they they do not get certain needs met and i've seen this for years in practice with patients how you continually search for it but the fact that he found it in the way that he needed to find find it and felt like okay what i what no one did for my mother i now can step into that role as a protector right mm-hmm. Um, and he did it. 
I thought that was really a beautiful piece of his story. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think anyone will ever agree on the best way to heal, whether it's a public or a private venture. But um, I, I do commend him and them for their honesty about the process. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, for one, am glad they, you know, they've come out and done this media blitz. It's been a real interesting peek into a world that we just like have never seen before. So it it has been. And after I watched the documentary, I was like, ah, because there were articles that came out. Is this overkill? Is he saying too much? But there were so many things that he needed to say that were powerful that I can understand having held those in for so long mm-hmm. and having held his experiences and emotions in for so long that that it would have been cathartic yeah. to, to say it and to tell the, his truth. Right. So I, I don't think it was. I thought it was really well-written, mm-hmm. powerful, and certainly encouraging an encouraging message. Acknowledging that we do not have a crystal ball and won't know for sure what happens next. Let's round things out here in a row with your prediction for the future, mm-hmm. the impact this could have. What do you think we see a year down the line? And moreover, like I asked you before, if you were working to bring this family back together, like mm-hmm. where do you start? What's next? Do you think? Mm. Again, like I said, I, I, there's been a lot said and given the system that his brother and family are working in, I think they can hope for a peaceful relationship. I'm curious to see if he's going to the coronation of his father. I hope he does. Um, you can have a peaceful yet distant relationship. And for for many families, that is the relationship that works. It does not have to be close. Mm-hmm. But if you can find a way to be peaceful and find commonalities to connect on, perhaps that that's love of each other's kids. You know, maybe that's where it is. Maybe it's respect for... Um, their father. I don't, and I don't even know if Harry, how, to what extent Harry has that after going through what he has, but if they can find the commonalities that help them achieve peace through the distance, that would be huge for them. What I think for them, I mean, both of them are very altruistic, Megan and Harry, they're committed to serving, they're committed to mental health. And I think they have a mission in that. And they're like-minded in that they're working towards that mission in their life. So there's a lot of purpose and fulfillment and meaning that can come from a life devoted to those causes. And, and I hope they continue to do that together and continue to focus on how to strengthen their relationship because there, there is a lot that is coming against them and will, because as we know, marriage is difficult. It's a difficult institution when no one's watching, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. But when everybody is, that adds external pressure. So I hope they're able to really invest in their relationship as well. Nora, thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. I'm so grateful for your time. I love your perspective. You're just, you're just awesome at what you do. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Always happy to chat with you. Please tell us where we can find your book, when we can next catch you on the Today Show. Where do we find Nero next? Sure. So I, I'm on Instagram a lot, Nero Feliciano on Instagram, on my website, neurofeliciano.com. I have a podcast called All Things Life, which is starting up again this month. And I'm on the Today Show about once a month or so talking about mental health and parenting and on NBC News. So those clips are usually on my website after it comes up. But the next time I'll be on probably end of of February or early March. Every time I see you on the Today Show, I'm like, oh, I know her. I talked to her too. (laughs) Okay, Jenna and Hoda, I saw her first. (laughs) 
I do. I love it. I'm just so proud of you. Cheering you on from afar, for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and follow along on Instagram, at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I-A-B-A-T-T-A. All of the latest blog posts are at wegotatalk.com slash blog. (laughs) 